Well, Advent is a beautiful time of year. I think we can say that pretty objectively. And if we would take a vote collectively, I think we would all vote that there is great beauty in this season of life. I mean, look around our sanctuary right now. There's things that look different. There's some greenery that's around. We're wearing some different colors this morning. And some of these little details add nice little touches that remind us that we are entering into a special season. Beyond the beauty of the decorations, there's the wonders of the food, and I'm sure some of you already have your favorites that you're asking and requesting family members to make that you perhaps didn't already get this last Thursday uh, during Thanksgiving. There's the joy and wonder of giving gifts. We love receiving gifts. Some of us love giving gifts. We love spending time with those who we love and cherish, and all of those opportunities are all ahead of us in the coming weeks as well. But as beautiful as Advent can be. Also, there are little hints and nodes of bitterness, also that are woven throughout the flavors of this season as well. We often in this time of year might be dealing secretly with great discouragement as we look back over the course of the past year and consider the circumstances that we've lived in. We set goals at the beginning of 2020 and perhaps they haven't quite ended up the way that we thought they would be. We had expectations about how life was going to go. We dealt with loss over this season. Our own church and congregation have dealt with loss in varying means, from relationships changing and shifting and evolving to our own members passing away and entering into eternity. You see, amidst the great beauty of this season, there's also hints of bitterness. And sometimes the hints aren't hints. In fact, they're the most prominent flavor that you're tasting during this month. Friends, I don't know where each of you are right now, but I'd like to say if any of that rings true for you in any way, then Advent is the season for you because the gospel is the message for you. The gospel is the message that God looking out on the world in all of its beauty, all of its bitterness and brokenness, deliberately and diligently entered into the world to redeem it, to solve the problem of evil, to solve the problem of our sin, to not just make peace with us, but also to invite us into eternal fellowship with Him, and not just to invite us into fellowship with Him, but also to commission us and to dignify us, allowing us in the duration of our lives to join Him in the work of redemption. And as we live and as we engage in the brokenness of our world, we see proof of God's work at, uh, in our world, in time and space, through the ways that He is restoring the friendships, the relationships, and the people that we encounter as He brings one person, man and woman at a time, into relationship with Him by faith and through His grace. And so, friends, as I said, if you're tasting any of that bitterness and beauty this season, Advent is the season for you. And as we think about this teaching, Paul, the Apostle Paul, was firmly aware of the times in which he lived. And the ironies of life were not lost on him. He was a Jew born in a Gentile city. He grew up as a Pharisee, one of the conservative branches of Judaism. And he found himself in this stage in life writing and teaching as a chief leader of a splinter group who he once persecuted. I mean, can you imagine the tensions of his own life, socially and relationally, and as he just navigated and worked around life? 
He was full of all the quirks and quagmires that we all experience in our ongoing seasons of our life. But because he grasped the truth that we live between the two fixed points in human history, between the time of God's incarnation and the time of his return, he was full with great vigor for what the Lord had now called him to do. Had he missed the Messiah? Well, Paul was probably a contemporary of Christ, so in a sense, yes, he didn't meet him while Christ was on the earth, but in another sense, oh no, he didn't miss Christ, because Christ had called out to him and commissioned him to be an apostle of the glorious gospel, that God has not left creation alone. He is about the business of restoring creation. He has not neglected her to continue in decay and disease, but he's working actively to transform the world into something far more beautiful than any of us could ever imagine. And he's started that work in Christ. Paul knew this. It's why Paul lived how he lived. It's why Paul did what he did. And praise be to God that the Lord preserved the letters that Paul wrote to fledgling churches who were hacking it in life just like you and I are amidst the cultural weirdness of trying to be a Christian in the ancient Roman world. So also God in his grace preserved these letters for us that we might taste the truth that he was communicating through the apostles to our own circumstances this day. And it's within the context of those circumstances that I would like to remind us that if you are hearing and listening to God's word this morning, there are at least three invitations from Christ that are upon you. Now, there are so many more invitations that are upon you from Christ than I can possibly describe this morning, but let's focus on three today. The first invitation from our passage from Paul to the church in Rome and to the Holy Spirit also for us as an invitation for us in the midst of the strangeness of this season to truly wake up again and to wonder at the glory of God. The second invitation is for us to don the dignity of Christ, to put on the glory and majesty of Christ's person, and to walk as people renewed in his image. And then the third invitation is to live, to truly live to the delight of God and to the blessing of creation. Well, let's look at these individually this morning in our remaining time. Paul says to the church at Rome, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. I don't know how you like to wake up. I don't. <laughs> In fact, I prefer not to. <laughs> When I sleep, everything goes exactly how I want it to go. And if I don't like how it's going, when I become aware of that, I wake up, and all of a sudden, everything is better again. But in the course of life, every day at some point, we must wake up. And I don't know what Paul's tone here was, whether he was shouting in his mind as he was talking to the church or to the um, scribe who was writing this down to have it delivered to the church at Rome, or whether he was speaking softer and more gently like you would try to raise your uh, younger child, awake them from sleep. But regardless, the invitation is upon us to wake up and to rouse ourselves from, or be roused, aroused from our sleep 
It's interesting here, Paul's uh, discussion here, he's not talking about, he's talking to believers. So he knows that these individuals are already aware of their position in state in Christ. But in the midst of even being a believer, they needed to wake up, to rise up to the truths of the realities that were before them and live in light of them. So his motivation, his argument really breaks down into three main points in this verse. Firstly, he says that the time, it's late in the day. Look, the sun's been rising. It's time for you to wake up. You've been sleeping in, and isn't that a great grace? But now open your eyes and start to walk and live and embrace the calling that is before you. The second line of argument that Paul gives is such a beautiful statement. He says, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. If you want something to motivate your heart in the morning, read that verse, friends. Salvation is nearer to you now than when you first believed. See, that truth reigns strongly in Paul's own life that he doesn't know when Christ was going to return. He thought it was much more imminent than what we have experienced in human history. But the truth still remained that in God's timing, as every single day passes, we are one day closer, one day closer to the return of the Lord. And then thirdly, uh, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. Since the victory of light over darkness is eminent, don't stay in your bed. Don't be discouraged. Don't throw the covers back over your head and try to fall back asleep. Throw them off. Put your feet on the ground and get ready for the activities that are before you this day. Well, the first invitation is to wake up and wonder, to open your eyes and see the beauty of the one calling you and the beauty of what he has called you to do through the gospel. The second invitation that comes to us in the midst of our passage is for us to don the dignity of Christ. What do I mean by donning the dignity? Well, Paul here in our passage uh, uses the language putting on the armor of light and putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. We all have differing articles of clothing in our wardrobe. I have an abundance of really crummy athletic shorts that can barely even stay up when I'm trying to run an exercise. Those need to be <laughs> relocated into a new permanent home in the trash bin. We have other articles of clothing in our homes, perhaps our sweatshirts. We have our things for professional life. We have perhaps our church clothes. And each of our clothes are affixed to a different level of dignity and how we live and operate in the world. But as we think about the language of putting on and putting off, the language of donning, I think, is so much better because you think about we never don anything because our clothes are relatively mundane. But in history and time and in circumstances, there are times when it is appropriate to use the language of donning certain attire. When you graduate from college, when you graduate from an academic program, you get a robe and you don it as a symbol of your new status, moving from a graduate to a postgraduate or an undergraduate to a graduate student, depending on your, on your status. And it's meant to give you a sense of honor and achievement. None of us are kings and queens, but we know that the kings and queens in our world don't wear crowns all the time. They wear them when it is appropriate for their times and state, where they're called to sit as a figurehead in the midst of the world, reflecting who they truly are. 
See, this is the language that Paul's trying to communicate to us when he says to the church at Rome and other places in the New Testament to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Don Him. Wear with dignity the calling and the person of Christ. Yeah, it may be awkward. It's awkward sometimes adjusting to a, t- a new robe. <laughs> Trust me, <laughs> I experience it from time to time. But as we grow and as we adapt to the rhythms and person of Christ, we start to walk with new dignity. Now, that dignity might not be dignity in human eyes, because sometimes the values of the cross are foolishness to the world. But the dignity in which we are called to walk is the dignity of Christ, in whom the full delight of heaven dwells. So friends, in the midst of the weirdness of the season, put off the strange thinking of living in sloth or living according to the values of our world and embrace the challenge this year, this day, this morning, this week, to walk in the dignity of Christ. Remember that you have been bestowed great honor by God as he has called to you and loved you. He has cared for you and now is calling to you to walk in light of his glory and grace. Well, the third invitation in the midst of the quirkiness of our season is the invitation to truly live in the delight of God and the blessing of creation. Heading back up to our first few verses in verses 8 and 10 of chapter 3, Paul says, Owe no one to anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. It's interesting in God's calling that rarely is there just a singularity that he's trying to accomplish in his action. You see, when we are faithful to the law of God, when we are faithful to his commands, there's a whole host of things that are going on. Firstly, when we're faithful to God's commands, we are revealing to God that we truly love him, that we've listened to him, that we've heard him, and that we're desiring to walk in his ways. There's also a blessing upon us that living according to God's will and plan is really meant to be our best way of living. You don't live and function and treat a computer and disregard its actual purpose and function in the eyes of the designer. So also we as human beings have been called to live and function in a particular way. And that way has been outlined for us by God, defined by loving him and loving others. And so when we operate according to God's laws and will and word, we are not only glorifying him, but also we are living the best possible life that we can in God's eyes. And there's a third benefit. Wait, there's more. Not only are you blessing heaven, not only are you living the best life now, but so also you are flourishing creation by loving creation as creation can only be loved in a way that produces transformation. And that's by loving creation according to Christ. Friends, it's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy. Christ crossed heaven and earth to come into human flesh in order to redeem us from the thralls of sin. What boundaries is he calling us to cross this holiday season? They may be our own comfort. 
They may be the own quirkiness and weirdness of the social dynamics that we experience this season, but God's calling upon us to cross those barriers and to engage the world in a manner that He would is intended to produce in the world its optimal flourishing. Friends, do you see the calling of Christ upon us this year? If you've been living in the strangeness and weirdness, if you've been regretting Advent, friends, you don't need to, because Advent is for you. It's to bless you. It's to encourage you. It's to remind you of the glorious truths that were spoken by God far before the foundations of the world, that He's going to be praised, and He's going to be glorified. And you know what, friends? We have the joy to see it happen in us. May it be so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask your blessing upon us this Advent season. Father, we come into Advent with differing states in our hearts and minds, but, oh, Lord, would you be glorified in us? Would you teach us, comfort us, and direct us in every way that we might be whole and holy in your sight? In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.